0: Brian McClanahan show episode 438. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, BrianMcClanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, 10 Myths of American History. And you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a new class out right now, Originalist Papers Part 2. is part of a four-part series that will be rolled out entirely over the summer. But Parts 1 and 2 are out. You can get a good deal on it right now if you're on my email list for the next next couple of days or so. I still have a sale running on that. So make sure you go out there, get on the email list, get over at McClanahan Academy. It's a great way to support the show. It's a win-win. You get great content. Just for signing up, but you can also purchase classes there that help keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at BrianMcLennahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can buy a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. It's a great way to get uh, that. You know, If you've got one of my books, and I've got a number of those seven out right now, you can get one of my seven books, and if you want my autograph on them, just get that book plate. You can also purchase my books anywhere books are sold. My latest is Southern Scribblings. 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. I do have at least one, if not two more books coming out this year as well. So you're going to want to look for those. And again, being on my email list is the way that I communicate with you. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Going out to learntrue, T-R-U-E, True History.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. And as always, share this podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. It's a great way to advance... The message and also get new listeners. I like organic growth, and word of mouth is the best way to do it. All right, all that said, let's talk about the topic of the day. And I want to go back to a piece that I wrote. It's actually one of the first pieces I ever wrote for Lou Rockwell. I think it was the the first piece I ever wrote for LouRockwell.com, and it's on the National Democratic Party. I wrote this piece in 2009. And it's going to be, in uh, it's, it's just a great essay. I mean, it's something I just want to talk about because of one of the individuals in it, or at least some of the content in it. And that is uh, the National Democratic Party Handbook. So if you don't know anything about the National Democratic Party, in 1896, the conservative element of the Democrats walked out of the convention and formed their own party. 1896 is an interesting election. You have... William Jennings Bryan received the nomination for the Democrats. He was a Silverite. And so the conservative element of of the party thought that he was going to destroy the party. He was moving it too far to the left. On the other hand, you had William McKinley, who was the Republican nominee. And McKinley had generally adopted a gold standard playbook for the 1896 election. In fact, he was courting Southern voters. He went on a Southern tour. This was unheard of for the Republican Party to try to court voters in the South. But that's what McKinley was trying to do, and a lot of conservative Southerners voted Republican in 1896 because they didn't trust William Jennings Bryan. Now, not everyone. Of course, Bryan is going to win a large number of Southern states. But regardless, you did have this disaffected group of Democrats who thought that the Democrat Party was going to be disastrous and that it was going to destroy the original intent of the party. And so some of these people formed a new party, a splinter party. And it was called the National Democratic Party, and it was often called the Gold Standard Party. Now, Grover Cleveland didn't put his name to it, but he certainly supported it. Grover Cleveland was their guy in a lot of ways, but Cleveland, of course, had already served two terms as president. He didn't want to do it again. So the Democrats moved in a different direction in 1896, and as a result, you have this party. But what I want to do is focused on one of the speeches given during this campaign, uh, during the convention, I should say, the National Democratic Party convention. And the interesting thing about this party is that they nominated a union veteran, a union general, John Palmer for president, and a Confederate general, Simon Bolivar Buckner, as vice president. Now, Buckner was from Kentucky. He didn't have a great military career, though interestingly enough, his son... Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr. was killed as a lieutenant general in World War II. He was over in Okinawa, and a shell went off, and he was killed in action. He was the highest-ranking general officer to be killed in action during the war, and the highest-ranking officer in the United States, or the last you know, general to be killed in, in live fire until September 11th. I mean, this is often you know, the attacks on the Pentagon were often considered a live fire type of attack. But Buckner was on a Ford observation point and hit by an, an enemy shell. So um, that's interesting. He was, he, Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr. actually attended this convention and campaigned with his father during this 1896 uh, campaign. And so, you yeah, know, that's really remarkable. That's, I mean, you think about how, how the connection there. I mean, here you have a guy that's fighting in World War II. He was in his 50s, but still a general officer in World War II, was campaigning with his Confederate father, in 1896, just amazing. Uh, but anyways, I want to I want to look at this speech because he says some really interesting things in this particular speech. And nobody really knows much about this this party at all or the platform of this particular party. But it was dedicated to, as he says here, sound money and limited government. I mean, this was the limited government, sound money party of 1896, not the Republicans, but this National Democratic Party. Interestingly enough, it pulled a a It didn't do well, of course, but it did pull some votes in Alabama and it pulled some votes in Delaware among other states. There were a few states that it actually pulled fairly well, uh, but not uh, enough to even get an Electoral College vote. However, because it was a union ticket, when I say union, it's a real union ticket. There's no sectional strife here. You've got a union general and a confederate general, and that was the whole idea, a fusion ticket of these two sides. And, And Buckner brings that up. So he says, I cannot fittingly express my acknowledgment for the very graceful and eloquent terms in which you have announced to me the action of the national democracy. I know, sir, that a spirit actuated that convention at Indianapolis which looked more to the general principle of democracy, that spirit of nationalism, than to any merit in me in selecting its candidates. It was known that I had been prominent on the border in advocating the true principles of democracy, but not, Mr. Chairman, for any merit in me, but because of that spirit of nationalism which always pervaded the Democrat Party. That feeling crystallized around me as an object to be associated with this gallant chieftain and blotting out all the past differences in sectionalism. Now let me stop there for a second. The Republican Party, as Buckner is going to point out, was never really a national party. Never. It was never a national party before the war. Lincoln didn't even get 40% of the popular vote in 1860 and only 55% in 1864 when only the North was voting. It was never a national party. The Democrat Party was a national party. It was a national party before the war. It remained a national party. But what Buckner is saying here is that with the choice of William Jennings Bryan, it's not going to be a national party. It won't find any currency in the North, at least in his estimation. And what they're looking at here is creating a fusion party. Again, Union Confederate, a real national party made up of all peoples, both sections. That was his goal. That was the goal of the National Democratic Party. He said, I accept that position, Mr. Chairman, and discharge that duty with as much willingness as I ever discharge any on earth to be associated with the movement which blots out all sectional lines forever and makes us one people and one nationality. Now again, this is in the spirit of reconciliation. Here we are, 1896, the war has been over for 30 years, and people are putting down the sword, and they're starting to reconcile. This is the spirit of Confederate monuments, Union monuments, of, of Union veterans attending Confederate memorial ceremonies, and vice versa. This happened all over the place. So... The idea here was to say, look, reconciliation is real. Let's get along with it. Let's go on with it. Let's do it. And this party represents the best of that. He said, it is time that the ancient spirit of democracy should be revived. We have had amongst us parties builded up heretofore upon sectional hate, parties which had advocated special interests at the expense of all other interests. We have had the great Republican Party ruling and controlling the destinies of this country, built upon hate and antagonism to one half of the country. If you look at the election maps, this is, uh, pause for a second. If you look at the election maps of the Reconstruction period, it's terribly divided. You've got the Democrats winning the southern states, barely winning any other states, if they did at all, and the the Republican Party winning the northern states, not really winning anything in the South. So Buckner's pointing out the Republican Party is still a sectional party in 1896. It it hasn't changed. That's what it's always been. But now at the very moment that that party has announced that it will cease the contention of one section against another, that hereafter it will be a national party, there springs up again among us another party, professedly built upon sectionalism, urgently insisting that one special interest in this country, that of the greedy silver miner, shall be built up at the expense of every other citizen in the land. And what is that party? Well, he's talking about the Democrat Party. He's saying, so now, look, the Republicans are saying, we're going to bury the hatchet, we're going to be a national party. And this is why a lot of Southerners consider voting for the Republicans in 1896, because they said they were the conservative party. But Buckner is saying, hey, wait a second, I know they're saying this, but they've never really been that. And now at this point, you have the Democrats adopting a sectional interest, and that's the silver interest. It's not really a national interest. He said, It is not proper that I should discuss the particular platforms of the different parties here, but it is well for us as patriots to ask the origin of this party, calling itself falsely the Democratic Party, how it was constituted and what are the principles that it enunciates. They claim that they were regular. The delegates to to that convention were appointed, it is true, under the regular authority of Democratic, Democratic Organization. When the primary conventions met to choose delegates to the state conventions, nearly every primary meeting began their proceeding by reaffirming the uniform principles of the Democratic Party. The delegates sent to their state conventions were therefore bound by the instructions they received to adhere to the principles of democracy. When the state conventions themselves met, almost without exception, they too reaffirmed the fundamental principles of the Democratic Party and sent their delegates to Chicago, bound in honor and by every political duty, to adhere to the principles of the Democratic Party. But he says this didn't happen. He says, did they do it? You have been told by the gentlemen who have preceded me how they violated their instructions, how they abandoned the principles of democracy, how they betrayed their own party to the enemy and went over to false doctrines. But they said that this, that, that was regular and therefore that we and everyone who has been associated with the Democratic Party are bound to follow their lead. Because they regularly proclaimed that the principles of democracy were dead. And that those of populism should be hereafter those of democracy. Now, stop here. This is an attack, again, as much as I said before, on populism. We, we, hear this, we hear this term a lot. Donald Trump's a populist. We've got populist Republicans. We've got populist Democrats. Here are the conservatives in 1896 saying that that's not conservative. Populism is not conservative. Now, certainly there are elements that they would agree with, the agrarian tradition of it. That's where populism springs from. But on the other hand, they would say that what they're trying to do is is distort the original Democratic Party. You, sir, I heard a few days ago make an admirable illustration of this on another point. These gentlemen at Chicago claimed that they were regular. Benedict Arnold was regular in his proceeding. He was regularly commissioned by his government. He wore his uniform. He was regularly assigned by Washington to the command at West Point and the island. He issued regularly his orders to the chosen staff officers to his troops, dispersed them broadcast, in order that, he, that the enemy might come in and massacre all of them. All that proceeding was regular, but when he was detected, when his rank treason was discovered, Washington and his associates refused to follow such regular proceedings. And yet, according to the theory of our friends at Chicago, Washington and the patriots of the revolution were bolters of the regular proceedings. And in the same sense, are we bolters, refusing to follow the leaders of this treachery, adhering as of old to the true principles and standard of democracy? The convention which meant Chicago was not democratic. When they abandoned democratic principles, it ceased to be a democratic convention and became that of the principles which it adopted. It's interesting he uses imagery from George Washington and not, of course, from the South which he could have made a case that Southerners were following the exact same thing. He is a Southerner himself, but, and of course Washington's also a Southerner, but he's using this as illustrative that, look, we love Washington too. Washington is the symbol of everything good in America. Notice he doesn't mention Abraham Lincoln. He mentions George Washington because Washington to many Americans, even in 1896, was still the glue. It wasn't until later that Lincoln became that. But Washington was still the glue in 1896. He says, the democratic faith has always claimed that the United States government is supreme within the limits of the authority they have received from the states and from the people. Well, this is true. That it has a right to, do, to go wherever that flag goes, and it is its duty to enforce the laws of the land in accordance with the powers conferred on it. Yet the Chicago Convention would wipe virtually out of existence that Supreme Court which interprets the law, forgetting that our ancestors in England fought for hundreds of years to obtain a tribunal of justice which was free from executive control. This is interesting that, you know, here we have these Democrats adopting the idea that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of the law, to interpret the law. He brings up English history, saying we for years fought for that, to have a final tribunal that could interpret the law, that would be that would be better than just arbitrary law. There would be something else. So this hatred for the Supreme Court wasn't necessarily manifest here in the 1896 Democratic National Democratic Party. Uh, they didn't want the executive controlling this branch. They didn't want the executive having full control of the the judicial branch, and that's what they saw happening. They would wipe that out of existence and subject it to the control of party leaders to carry out the dictates of the party. They would paralyze the arm of the general government and forbid the powers to protect the lives and property of its citizens. That convention in terms almost placed a lighted torch in the hands of the incendiary and urged the mob to proceed without restraint to pillage and murder at their discretion. Mr. Chairman, the Democratic Party can never endorse such heresy. We proclaim now, as we proclaimed in Indianapolis, the ancient principles of democracy, obedience to law, a court untrammelled either by legislative or by executive control, a tribunal, which is the last resort of the weak against the powerful. Though our friends in Chicago would destroy, we insist on upholding and supporting its decrees by the whole power of the state and national authority. And then he goes, I mean, so, look, There's a lot here. There's a lot what he's saying here about the Supreme Court. He's saying that, again, the whole point of the splinter. What he's saying, he's saying the Bryan nomination was a splinter nomination, that these people are the real Democrats. And he's saying that that is going to destroy the Supreme Court. It's going to destroy the executive branch. It's going to destroy the legislative branch. McKinley is promising that he's going to be a nationalist when he's really not. The Republicans are not that. They're not interested in a national government. They're interested in a sectional government. This, it's interesting how sectionalism, here we are 30 years after the war is over, is still talked about. We still have sections. These men are saying we don't have them anymore. We're erasing all of that. But certainly, they still thought that there were sections in the United States. He says, We have before us three platforms representing three parties in this country, and it is for you, fellow citizens, to choose which you will sustain. The Republican Party, still adhering to its principles of protection, where all classes are taxed for the benefit of one, and not regarding its fiatism, which two things together have brought all the commercial disasters of the country at this stage. It adheres to those doctrines. Then you have the true Democratic platform, which announces still the old Democratic doctrine, which may be summarized in a single sentence. The Jeffersonian doctrine of equal and exact justice to all and, executive, I'm sorry, and exclusive privileges to none. That to him is what the Democratic Party meant. Equal and exact justice to all and exclusive privileges to none. Now, imagine if the current Democrat Party was to read that. Could you say that that party believes in that particular doctrine anymore? They would say, well, we believe in the equal and exact justice to all. And exclusive privileges, and they would argue that that's the case because they're saying, well, look, we're not for exclusive privileges for anyone that's not, a, I mean, these people that aren't minorities are getting exclusive privileges. We're for whatever slogan they want to use, but their factionist coalition is for exclusive privileges. This is what they really want. So what what Buckner would say is that the, the Brian wing of the Democrat Party essentially is the modern Democrat Party. Nothing much changed. In fact, he would point to 1896 as the real departure from the Democratic Party, from the old Democratic Party to the new Democratic Party. This is interesting. This is an interesting argument to make. When did that happen? Some people say, well, it's the 1960s. What Buckner would say is, no, 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 it's before that. They abandoned the real Democratic Party in 1896 and then adopted other things as they moved forward. He says, we insist that for every 100 cents worth of work done by the laborer, he shall receive 100 cents. We advocate the freest possible trade, and we insist that the commerce of the world shall be brought to our ports and free ships, untaxed for the benefit of any special interests in this country. These are the fundamental doctrines of democracy we proclaimed, and over the, that flag, that the flag of democracy waves as proudly as ever in the, in the hour of victory. But there's another party that represented by the conclave of Chicago, and what flag is over it? Not the flag representing their principles, but like some pirate on the ocean, they hoist false colors in order to allure the unsuspecting within their reach. And over that deck, which is a platform in reality, the illegitimate offspring of Republican protectionism and fiatism and populistic communism, repudiation and anarchism, that true flag does not reveal the death's head of the pirate until you are lured within their reach, and then... For the first time, you find yourself engulfed in the chasm which they dig for their for their prosperity of their country. So, the current Democratic Party, just like the Republican Party. The illegitimate offspring of Republican protection and fiatism and populistic communism. He's saying populism is communism. I accept the task imposed upon me by the national democracy. It was unsought and undesired further than as one who believes he is a patriot is willing to devote the few remaining years of his life to the interests of his country. Not only do I accept the charge imposed upon me, but acknowledging the authority of that great democracy to place its members wherever it chooses, I obey their mandate and bear the flag which, through you, they have placed in my hands under our distinguished leader in that vast concourse of true Democrats, who follow his steps, knowing that in the future, as in the past, they lead only in the pathway of duty, of honor, of principle, and of patriotism. This is a really interesting speech, and I could have read Palmer's speech, but Buckner's speech has more of this in it. More of this reconciliationist message, more of this idea that democracy, the NDP, as they called it, was the real national party, that what they're trying to do is heal the wounds of Reconstruction, have a real national party, not some sectional party, but a real national party dedicated to real principles of Jefferson's democracy. It's interesting because, of course, the Republicans said they were built on Jefferson's democracy. This is why Jefferson becomes everything to everyone. People are rejecting Hamilton left and right, even though the Republican Party, as Buckner points out, still aligns itself with Hamilton's vision of the economic interests in America. It just... They didn't say that anymore. So this is a really interesting speech. I wanted to talk about it because of that, because it has so much in it. So many things, here we are in 1896, and how much really has changed in the last 100 plus years? 120 years since this speech was given, 124 years. How much really has changed? Is the Democrat Party as Buckner described it? Is the Republican Party as Buckner described it? Now, we know that protectionism, the Democrats eventually started advocating protectionism, whereas the Republicans became the free trade side. I mean, all this stuff gets muddled up eventually. But it's really interesting how all of this works, how all of this works at this particular time period, and how Buckner and these NDP, these National Democrats, were very critical of the of the of the other Democrats for adhering to a free silver pl- program because they said that was special interest. It was special interest. It was to benefit silver miners in their mind and debtors. So many ways. It was a special interest move. All right. So. It wasn't a long podcast, but I wanted to get that in there because I think it's really cool and something that you all might enjoy. To hear some of the stuff, I'd like to do these primary things. And by the way, this is how I organize, have organized many of my recent courses, the Southern Cultural and Intellectual History course, the Originalist Papers course. This is what I do in those courses. I go through these documents and give you an aside and what these things actually mean and the history behind it and why they're there and what, what does this mean? What are they saying here? Because these primary documents are the key. I will tell you as a historian, reading primary documents is how you get to the heart of anything. And I know a lot of historians focus on on secondary literature now. They spend most of their time worrying about what other historians said about stuff instead of going to the primary documents themselves and really looking at it. That is the work of the historian and uh, not uh, just simply historiography, regurgitating what other historians said about other stuff. That's just not really what historians should be doing. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you the next time on the next one. See you then.